morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Nehemiah. If you're, we're in the Old Testament, if you're looking in the Old Testament, it's about, oh, about middle of the Old Testament, you'll find the book of Nehemiah. It is after the book of Ezra, before the book of Esther. Now, uh, while it's in the middle of the Old Testament, it's important to know kind of the chronological events of the Old Testament. We used to do this thing back in, uh, Alan and I, back in Old Testament survey. And I, uh, we did what was called the Old Testament walkthrough. And I would do it for you, but I really don't know it. I don't know that I... We, we learned it out then out of fear that he would call us up in front of the 100 students in the class and have to do it. But it started creation, fall, flood, nations 4,000 years ago, Ur, Persian Gulf. And it ended with the story of Nehemiah. For Nehemiah, walls, and then 400 years, silence. So it's important to know as we go through the Old Testament, look at the Old Testament, this is kind of where it ends. Now, the book of Malachi is actually kind of the last book. It takes place right after uh, the story of Nehemiah. Uh, the people of God hear Nehemiah, they're rejuvenated, they're restored, they're once again following God. And then we see in Malachi that they kind of drift off once again. And, and kind of the theme in the story of the Old Testament, we see that often. The people of God pursuing God, following God, and then not doing it. And it's back and forth, and, and we see it all the way through the Old Testament, even until the end. So Nehemiah is the story of, obviously, uh, the exiles returning. They are returning to Jerusalem. The temple's been built, and now Nehemiah wants to restore God's people. More than just a story of bricks and mortar, it's a story of Nehemiah wanting to see God's people return to him. We talked about a couple weeks ago that, that Jerusalem was a picture of what the church is to, to, to be today. Jerusalem was to be a beacon to display the power and awesomeness of God. And the same thing, us as a church, as a group of people who love Jesus, who follow Jesus, the church and its people are to be a beacon to display the awesomeness and the power of God. And as we look at the story of Nehemiah, I, don't, don't just look at it as, oh, you know, that's a nice little Old Testament story. That's kind of a cool story. But look at it and see how it applies to us. Because there is great application in the book of Nehemiah, both for us as individuals, as people who want to pursue the kingdom of God, and us as, as a church. And not only the church locally, but the church globally. And understanding and trying to get a feel for how we can be that beacon for a lost, dying, and hurting world. How we as the church can display the awesomeness and the power of God. So as we read the story of Nehemiah, and we kind of look back on it, again, be challenged. Be challenged not just to hear, oh, yeah, God, God did another cool thing in the Old Testament, but, but what does this mean for me? What does this mean for the church? I'm going to read in, in Nehemiah chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look briefly at chapter 3. I would read chapter 3 to you, but if you would glance at chapter 3, it would probably take me about 20 minutes to read. There are about, Amy, if you're looking for a good... Uh, biblical name. There are about probably about 50 to 100 options uh, in chapter 3, so I would butcher most of them. So I'm not going to read chapter 3, but I encourage you, you know, kind of go back, read, uh, and understand what's going on. I'll talk about it a little bit. But, but chapter 2, uh, verse 11, it says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone of what my God put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and, and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. 
So I went, up the, I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because I ha- as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began to do the work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked? Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you we can look at a story like Nehemiah and not just read it as a story, but understand it has great application for us. As individuals, that we could look at our own lives and discover where are the broken walls, where are the burning gates, where do you need to come in and do a work. And as a church, the same thing. Where are our walls broken? Where are the gates burning? How can we be restored? How can we be a beacon to display the power of God? So this morning, God, as as we look at your word and we read the story of Nehemiah, challenge us to think that way. Challenge our hearts that how can we be changed? Not, not, Not just a building of brick and mortar, but us as individuals and us as a body of Christ. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we go back to, to Nehemiah chapter 1, and, and we understand that, that what's happening in Nehemiah, his brother comes, all right, he had returned to Jerusalem, and, and now he's coming, he's t- what's, what's he tell uh, Nehemiah? He tells, all right, the walls are broken, the gates are burning. Like we said a couple weeks ago, this isn't news to Nehemiah. In fact, this is, a, this is something that took place 141 years prior, okay? Nehemiah understood it. He knew the walls were broken. He knew the gates were burning. But what affects Nehemiah is his heart for the people of God, that the people of God are no longer worshiping God. They're no longer are being that beacon for God that we talked about. And so Nehemiah's heart is moved. He's challenged. And you'll read that in the month of Kislev, he gets this news and he begins to pray. He begins to fast. He begins to weep. He begins to cry over all this, all this, because his heart is broken for the people of God. Tim challenged us last week, and he he went through the prayer in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, and we see just a glimpse of the heart that Nehemiah has. A heart not, again, that that a a wall would be built and a city would be restored, but the the people of God would start worshiping God again. The people of God would display the awesomeness of God once again. And so that's the heart of Nehemiah. And we see in chapter 2, it kind of continues on, and we see Nehemiah go before the king, he gets permission to go back. Now, we've talked about before, Alan laid all that, this, this journey out for it, but he goes from Susa all the way back to Jerusalem. This is a journey that would probably have taken him one to two months. All right, It's not like a little trip over to Iowa City or to Davenport or uh, even to Houston or something like that. This is a trip that took some time. One to two months it took him. So here's where it starts. Uh, in chapter 2, it says, I went to Jerusalem... And after staying there three days, there are four points. If you are taking notes or you're that kind of person that likes to take notes, I think there's a couple of you in here, Tim. 
He loves taking good notes. All right, so four points I want to make for you today, okay? The first one is intercession. Intercession. The second one is inspection. The third one is influence. And I love alliteration, but I couldn't come up with an I for the fourth one. So the fourth one is mobilization. Not an I. And we're not immobile, so we're not going to throw that on there. But all right, so we, we have um, uh, the, the first one, which is intercession. Okay, intercession. And we read here in, in, in uh, chapter 2, he says this, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, intercession. What do we know about Nehemiah? What I just told you about Nehemiah. We go back to chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we see the heart of Nehemiah. It says he received this news in the month of Kislev. All right, he's given the news. Hey, the walls are broken. The gates are burning. And what is his response, as Tim shared last week? He's broken. He cries. He, he, he fast and he cries out to God that God would do a work. He realizes something. He realizes that apart from God, this isn't going to happen. If I want to see God do a work, if I want to see God move, it's not going to happen in and of myself. What, what, what Nehemiah realizes is that if God is for us, who can be against us? And he starts right there. He starts with crying out to God. And as, as Tim pointed out last week, man, he had a heart. He is so moved for the people of God that he weeps, he cries, he fasts, he mourns for them. As Tim challenged us last week, man, and he was even talking about his own brother. And is that my heart? That I would weep and cry and mourn for someone who was apart from Jesus, for someone who was not following God. That's the heart we get from Nehemiah that he wants God to do a work. And he realizes he can't do it. It's not a work that he can do. It's a God that God must intercede. And if you read this, he went to Jerusalem about a one to two month journey. And after staying there three days, here's a guy who's probably highly, highly motivated. He spent one to two months traveling. And what's the first thing he does when he gets there? He Sabbaths. He rests. He doesn't do anything. Why? Go back to what the heart of Nehemiah is. The heart of Nehemiah is understanding, hey, if this is going to get done, it's got to be God. God has got to do a work. Because if I come and I try to build walls and I try to do my thing, it ain't going to happen. And so Nehemiah starts with a Sabbath. And understand, a Sabbath is not simply, I work Monday to Friday, Saturday, I watch football. See, Iowa State get throttled in the morning. See, Iowa get throttled at night. Watch some more football on Sunday. That's, that's not the idea of a Sabbath, okay? Now, I'm not saying you can't watch football or anything like that. But w- when God set up the Sabbath, it was not just so we can get a break from work, but it's so we could commune with him. It's so we could spend time with him. So we can spend time in front of him, seeking him, praying, fasting, trying to understand his word, trying to understand his will and what he wants for my life and my pursuit of the kingdom of God. And so Nehemiah understands that it begins with God. And the first thing he does is he takes a Sabbath, three days. And in that, we see in chapter 1, chapter 2, Nehemiah is probably praying. He's probably fasting. He's probably meditating. He's doing all these things in preparation for what God is going to do because he realizes that is where it begins. And for us, there's so much application in that, isn't it? 
If we want to see God do a work in our own lives, in our marriage, in the lives of our kids, in our influence of people for the kingdom of God, this is where it begins. Asking God, God, you have to do something because I can't. Because in and of myself, there's no hope. We need you to intercede. We need you. There's a story in Deuteronomy about the hornet going before the nation of Israel. That was the, the spirit of God going before into battle. The hornet would go before him. And that's the picture we want. That before we go into battle, before we do our thing, we need the hornet to go before us. We need the spirit of God to go before us. God's hand has to be at work. Because if I try to do it, it's not going to happen. Do we want to see God move when we build a building, when we, well, you know, we're moving and we're starting this project over on Beaver? Do we want to see God move? Yeah. But we start by asking God to intercede. And we can have a cool place to hang out, do some cool things. But if we really want to see God move in our lives and the lives around us, this is where it begins. Asking God to move. God, you do what I cannot do. God, you work because I can't do it. When I pray, God works. When I pray, God works. And that's what we want to see. And everything we do in our marriages, in our relationships, in our families, at work, in our relationship with God, in what God wants to do and using a new ability as a facility for us to reach people, to reach the lost, to reach a dying and hurting world, it begins by asking him to intercede, by asking him, the hornet, to go before us. And so the first thing we see from Nehemiah is intercession, knowing that God must go first. So that's one verse. We'll get through the rest a little quicker than that. So he went to Jerusalem and staying there three days, he said, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. Can, we, can you throw that first slide up there for me? Okay, I want you to get pictures. I read this story. Now understand, I'll read it again for you, but understand in these days, okay, there would be a city, and to protect your city, you had to have a wall. You didn't want thieves coming in at the night and stealing anything, or if an army was besieging you, you needed, basically, you needed protection. And so you'd have the wall around your city, and then there'd be gates, all right, to access different things. We'll read about some of those, but um, I love the dung gate, right? <laughs> you, you understand uh, what, what, I think in the new building, if we're looking for ideas instead of restrooms, just label it the dung gate. <laughs> Where are your restrooms? We don't have restrooms. We're biblical. We have a dung gate. So that'd be great for visitors. So, but there's different places. All right, obviously we know what the dung gate would be, the water gate, the sheep gate, fish gate, old gate, these, these type of things. So this is where they would go to you know, do the various things, but they would fortify. So if an army was coming upon them, they would go and, the, and they'd protect their gates. It was kind of their way of fortifying. And these, the wall would be 16 feet high, all right, so it would protect them. It protected them from armies, it protected them from thieves, things of that nature. So what had happened at the time, the temple's been rebuilt for several, several years now, but there's no protection in the city. And so people aren't living in the city. There's some people living in the city, but a lot of people are not. Okay, they're kind of scattered all over the place. And so what Nehemiah wants to see is God's people come together. Remember, Jerusalem is the place where God is going to dwell in the Old Testament. If we were to worship God rightly in the Old Testament, this is where it took place, in the city of Jerusalem. Now, it changes, right, with Jesus. Jesus comes along, and now it says the Spirit of God dwells within us. All right, so it changes, Old Testament to New Testament. But this is a picture of what, what's going on. 
Nehemiah wanting to build the wall. So I'll read it for you again. I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone that was uh, what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, a mount, you know, he had a, a mule or a donkey. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up, went up the valley uh, by night, examining the wall. Finally, finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. All right, so Nehemiah, first thing he does is he asks God for intercession. The second thing he does is he inspects. Inspection. And so he goes out. Remember, now he's heard the story. He knows that the, the walls have been broken down. He knows the gates are on fire. He knows all that's going on. He's heard it, but he's not seeing himself. And probably in the journey, he may have been praying about it. He may have been taking notes. He may have been doing all these things. But it comes apart. finally comes the time. He gets there. He rests. And what's he do? He says he goes out during the night. Now, Nehemiah did this uh, for, for a couple reasons. You need to understand that, that Nehemiah knew what he was up against. He knew that there was much opposition to this. He knew that the neighboring uh, countries would, would not like this. They didn't want to see Jerusalem be great again. They didn't want to see God's power be displayed again. So he had much opposition to this. So Nehemiah, very quietly, goes in and he inspects what the damage is. He inspects the broken walls. And it was so bad, in some places, he couldn't even get through on his mule. That was the shape uh, that the wall was in. So he inspects it. He looks, he finally, finally puts it all together. But he gives us a great picture of kind of what a, a leader kind of should look like. He's not somebody, remember, he'd been given authority by the king. He'd been given protection by the king. But Nehemiah doesn't march in, get there on the first day, and walk up to him and say, all right, here's how it's going to go. You all, this is what you need to do. Well, what's he do? He comes, he first, he asks God to move, and then quietly, with just a few men, in the middle of the night, so people doesn't, don't know what he's doing, he inspects the issues. He, he sees where the walls are broken, where the gates have been burned. He wants to figure out a plan and devise a plan, inspect what the issues are first. See, for us, this is kind of where it begins. Honest, honestly inspecting the broken walls of us as individual followers of Jesus is going to enhance the church as a whole. We as individuals, and what this means for us individually, is to look at our own lives and ask the question, where are the broken walls in my own life? Where are the gates burned in my own life? And this is an easy thing to do, is it? You know, to inspect our own life. Is that easy to do? No, it's humbling. It's hard. It's not easy. Now, I can, I can look back and I can, I can look at things in my life and I, you know, I could probably tell you, okay, here, here's where the walls are broken. Here's where not God needs to do a work. And yet, so many times, what do I do? Nothing. I know what I need. That's, that's one of the most disturbing things, is when people know what they need to do and don't do it. I mean, this, the walls have been broken for 141 years. Nehemiah is probably not the first guy that's come around and said, hey, let's rebuild these walls. But Nehemiah is the first guy that probably showed some real leadership in it. 
who started by seeking God and then started next by, by inspecting what the issues were. And if we want to see Cornerstone, if we want to see our individual lives grow and deepen with God, it starts by inspecting our own walls to figure out where the walls are broken in our own lives, to figure out where the gates need to be repaired. So I, I ask you and I challenge you as individuals, can we look at our own lives and inspect, okay, where does God need to fix some walls? Where does God need to repair some gates? Do we have relationships with other people that they can come to me and say, you know what, Kyle, this is a broken wall in your life. This is where a gate needs to be repaired. Now, in, in complete humility, it's, it's hard to hear that from people sometimes, isn't it? Because it's oftentimes a lot easier for people to go up, well, you need to fix that. I'm great with that with my wife. Well, here's a broken wall in your life. Here's a gate that needs to be repaired. You need to do this. You need to do that. You know, you're messed up. I'm great with that. But how do I receive it myself? Kyle, you know what? This is a wall that needs to be repaired. This is a gate that needs to be fixed. And we don't, we're all dealing with maybe some similar things, maybe some different things. Maybe it's things in our past. Maybe it's addictions that we still deal with. Maybe it's just apathy for life and the pursuit of God. But we need to honestly assess where we are in our relationship with God. Can we figure out where the walls are broken and where the gates are burned? And are we willing to do something about it? And if you sit here this morning, oh, my, my walls are great. My gates are, they're solid. Well, then we probably have some even bigger issues. See, self-preservation is, is one of the, the greatest ob- obstacles of the church, of us as individuals and the church as a whole. When we think we've got it, when we think we've got to figure it out, man, that's when we're probably the farthest away. And so I want to challenge you. Honestly assess, where are the walls broken? Where are the gates burned? And what must be done to repair them? Because as, as a church, it starts with us as individuals. And we understand God didn't put us in a position we have to do this alone. All right, he gives us other people to do this. He gives us other people who can challenge us in this way. But this morning, honestly assess, where are my walls broken? Where are the gates burned? And we begin to do that. God can begin to use individuals in the church to do a work for, the, for his church, for his people, for his kingdom. And so for us, that's, that's kind of what it looks like. And as a church, we need to also assess. If we want, remember our mission here at Cornerstone is reaching people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus. Nehemiah, what did he do? Well, he prayed. He asked God to intercede. And then he inspected. He assessed the situation so he could do something about it. Would have been awesome if Nehemiah goes in. Oh, yeah, the wall's broken there. Gates, no, no, that's done. Oh, that's awesome. Let's move on. It's one thing to assess. It's another thing to go do. But that's where it begins. We need to see where the walls are broken. We need to see where, where the gates have been burned and where it needs to be repaired. And so for us as a church, as we think about wanting to reach a broken world with the gospel of Jesus, we need to assess what, what, who are we reaching? What are we reaching him with? So I, 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 can you go to the next slide? I shared some of these things the other day. But this is just a picture. The, the above picture, you can't see it real well. It's Again, that's that 10-mile radius. And remember, there are 408,000 people 
four and eight thousand people within ten miles who were putting that that building over on Beaver. Now we understand today the church is mobile. We go basically we we can go about anywhere with uh, transportation, those type of things. Heck, the grubs come from about Minnesota every week. We understand that, but. This is the community in which we're in, all right? These are the 408,000 people within a 10-mile radius. We talked a couple weeks ago that basically about two-thirds of them aren't in a, uh, basically involved in a church. So that's about 259,000 people not involved in a church within 10 miles of where we're putting this building. The second one's just going to give you where there's no faith involvement. And if you see this little square right kind of in the middle, that's, that's where we're at. So the greatest no-faith involvement, this is beyond not even being involved in church, this is no-faith, you know, they don't even, wouldn't even call themselves Christian or, or whatever. No-faith involvement. Look at these areas, the highest, 33 to 42 percent, with, with no faith, with no even understanding of a faith. That's right in our area. Look at some of that red. That is within a mile of where we're putting this complex. No faith. No understanding of Jesus. No understanding of the freedom that, that God offers through his son, Jesus. Here we are. We don't want to be just about bricks and mortars. We want to be, how can we reach a lost and dying world with the message of Jesus? Here's some stats. When we think about assessing and inspecting, I shared some of them before, but think about these 259,000 people. Family problems. When asked the question, what are the biggest problems in your life? The first one was uh, one in six families dealing with some sort of addiction, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, some, something in that nature. One in five dealing with issues with their kids. All right? How, is we, how can we as a church address those? We have the message of freedom, that people can know what it is to be free of their sin, to be free of their past. Isn't that a message that would reach people with drug and alcohol addictions, that, that no longer has to rule their life. They can know the power and the freedom that comes with Jesus. One in five people dealing with issues with their kids. Couldn't we be a center where we can teach and train parents how to raise their kids in a godly fashion? Wouldn't that be awesome? To be a place you can come and you can learn, this is how I need to train my child. This is how I can respond in a godly manner. Wouldn't that be awesome? Another question was asked, your hopes and dreams. 54% said long-term financial stability. You know, Jesus talked about money often, didn't he? He talked about money more than anything else. And we don't want to be a church that says, all right, you need to give, 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 give. We want to be a church that trains people, how can you be a good steward of what God has given you? How can you use your time, your talents, and your treasure to reach people for the message of Jesus. 25% said achieving marriage success. Their hope and their dream was that they would have a successful marriage. Don't we have some words that could help people have a successful marriage? Tim has challenged me. Tim and Kara challenged me right lately. They've had a heart that, that the enemy wants to attack the marriages in the church. And so how can we, as a church, strengthen marriages? Show people what, what a God-centered marriage should look like. We have that. So can we be a church, can be a center, think of that 10 miles, those 259,000 people, where people can come and say, this is how I can have a marriage that is successful. The same number, uh, when asked the question, hope and dreams, 18% developing parenting skills. 
Same thing. We already talked about that. We could be a place, an avenue where people could learn those things. Spiritual problems. Number one thing was dealing with stress. 30%. Think of that 259,000 people. Dealing with stress. Couldn't we be a place that, that, that shares? This is who Jesus is. His burden is easy. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. This is who Jesus is, and this is what he offers. 17%, finding companionship. 14%, finding a good church. 11%, spiritual teaching. 14%, direction for life. May we dream together, right, what God may do in and through his people here at Cornerstone. We don't want to be a place just of brick and mortars. We want to be like Nehemiah, assess and realize, okay, this is who we're reaching. This is the needs of who we're reaching. Now what are we going to do about it? So Nehemiah, he inspects. He looks at the damage. He looks at what needs to be done. And then it continues on. Verse 17, it says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. He's now talking to the exiles that are returned. He's talking to all the people in Jerusalem. Here's what he said. You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon, upon me and what the king had said to me. So here he comes before the people. This is our next point, influence or inspiration. Nehemiah gives us a picture of this. He's asked God to intercede. He has inspected. He's seen the issues. And now he comes before the people. And he influences. He inspires them to do something great. 141 years the walls have been destroyed. The gates have been burned. 141 years. Not the first time that somebody's come to him about this, probably. Not the first time they've discussed this. But Nehemiah comes before him, and he inspires them for greatness. He inspires them to do something simply seeming humanly impossible. 141 years, they've been broken and burned. And in 52 days, I don't want to give away the ending, but in 52 days, they build the wall. 52 days to build the wall. What had been broken and burned for 141 years. Nehemiah inspires and influences the people for greatness. Now we can sit here and we can ask the, the question, well, Kyle, yeah, but Nehemiah was a leader in the church. And so this, this is a good story, but you know, I'm, I'm not a leader in the church. I don't have influence in the church, so I don't really know how that applies. But I want you to think for a second, areas in your life where you have influence. Areas in your life where you can inspire people. See, we, we are all, in some area in our life, have areas of influence. It may be in your family. You may be a, a husband to your wife. You may be a wife to a husband. You may have kids. You may be a teacher. You may work with people. You may have a circle of friends. But all of us have areas of influence. And what Nehemiah can offer us is an example of a person who inspires people to do what we cannot do in and of ourselves, but what only God can do. What if the hornet goes before, God can do a work. And so we want to be people like Nehemiah, who uses the influence we have 
to inspire people for greatness. And that's what Nehemiah does. But we understand it doesn't just begin by giving, okay, this is what we want to do, this is what we want to do. It starts by asking God to move. It starts by understanding what the issues are. And then ultimately it ends by pointing people, this is who God is. This is how you can follow him. This is what you need to do. And so Nehemiah gives us a great picture of a person of influence. Remember, 141 years and nothing's happened. And here is their response to him. They replied, let us start rebuilding. Let us start rebuilding. Nehemiah says, rise and build. Their response, let's do it. Let's get it done. 141 years. They'd not been inspired. They'd not really given. And finally, after all this time, a man of God like Nehemiah comes along and inspires and influences them to do the work. That we would have that kind of influence and offer that kind of inspiration to those in our life. We understand it doesn't come from us. We can't sit here and influence and inspire people in and of ourselves for, for godly purposes to impact the kingdom. But it begins with God. It begins with having a heart like Nehemiah had, a heart for God, a heart for, for God's people, a heart to see God at work is where it begins. <clears throat> if you read through chapter 3, and we're not going to do it, but read through chapter 3, and I encourage you to do so. But the last thing we see is mobilization. Starts with intercession, God going before God, or Nehemiah going before God, ask him to move. Starts, and, and next thing is uh, kind of the inspection and assessing what needs to take place. And then he influences and inspires the people for greatness. And then they rise and build. And chapter three basically lays out it says, you know, this family is working on the dung gate, this, the, the perfumers, the, the blacksmiths. The merchants, everybody is going to work, right? People that have probably never done a whole lot of physical labor, they're out there working, and they're working together. And it says this family is next to this family, and these guys are next to these guys, and these guys are next to these guys, and it continues on. I think other than a few nobles, it says the nobles didn't want to get out there and work, right? What a way to remember it in the Bible. These guys doing work next to these guys. Here's the thing. I can't even pronounce their name. We're not going to remember their name. But isn't it cool that God used ordinary people to do extraordinary things for his kingdom? We're not going to be remembered. hate to break it to you, but there's nobody in this room that's going to be remembered you know, 10, 15, 20 years after we're gone. But even people not remembered, even people, I can't pronounce their names, can do something that will make an impact for eternity. That's why we're here. That's what God has put us here for. We may not be remembered, and it's sobering thought to, to know that our legacy is not going to go on, but yet in that, we can make an impact that will last for eternity. We can impact lives for the kingdom of God for eternity. It's an awesome thing that God can use just ordinary merchants, ordinary blacksmiths, perfumers, Perfumers probably could have spent a little more time down by the dung gate. That's not where they were working. But ordinary people, God used to do an extraordinary thing for his kingdom. That's what he wants to do with us. Is He wants to take very ordinary people, no offense, but ordinary people to do amazing things for his kingdom. And we look at the 259,000 within a 10-mile radius, and we look at 
the brokenness that comes with those 259,000. And we ask God, God, we need the hornet to go before us. God, we need you to intercede. We need you to be at work because in and of ourselves, it's not going to happen. And individually, we need to assess where are the broken walls? Where are the burning gates? What needs to be repaired in my life? And God, I'm not looking to repair myself. I can't do it. I need you to do a work. And then we pray and we'd ask God to move in our, in our lives first individually. And as that happens, God is going to begin to build and move in his church. That'd be an awesome thing. Couldn't, wouldn't it be awesome to, to not only dream about, but see God move in a way we've never seen him move before? Nehemiah gives us a picture of kind of what that can look like. And may we be people who seek not just to hear a story about bricks and mortars, but hear a story of how God can use very ordinary people to impact and influence people for eternity. That's what we want to be about. That's what we want to be a part of. And so may we pray, not only this morning, but may we continue. Remember, remember the story? Nehemiah, what did he do? He heard the story in, in the month of Kislev, and then the San, which is a spring month. I mean, that's like three or four months, all right? Three or four months he spent time praying and fasting and crying out to God that he would move. It's amazing to have that kind of heart, that kind of heart, that we would want to see God move and God's people in that kind of way, like Nehemiah did. Let's pray for that. God, we thank you. We thank you for a story of Nehemiah. More, more than just a story of a wall being built. Because a, a wall being built is really uninspiring. But the story of God's people returning to you. A story of you using a generation to impact the world around it. A story of, of you, once again, using your people to display your power and your greatness and being a beacon for a lost and broken world. And God, we want to see that in Cornerstone. We want to see that in our lives. We want to see this church become a, a beacon, not only in Johnston, but for the world that they may see you in all your greatness, in all your glory, in all your power. God, help us to examine our lives. Help us to find the broken walls and the burning gates. And God, we pray that you would repair, that you would do a work, that the hornet would go before, that the Spirit of God would go before us and do something we cannot do. And we pray it and we ask it in Jesus' name. that we want to invite you for those of us that have a relationship with Jesus to, to take the bread and the juice and remember his body that was broken and his blood that was shed. We can be inspired and, and hear a story like Nehemiah and be inspired to do something. But you know how long it's going to last? Apart from Jesus? Not very long. And so we want to be challenged and encouraged first and foremost to be in love with Jesus. To worship Jesus, to remember this great thing that he's done for us, his body that was broken and his blood that was shed. And when we fall in love with Jesus, and we, we want to do things like we talked about today. We want to go out and impact the world because he loves us and he loves the world. Let me pray and let us continue to worship. 
God, we thank you for Jesus. He is the point of all this. And God, there is a lost and broken and dying world that needs to know him. And God, we, we thank you that, that you sent your son, that a lost and dying and broken world could know him. And God, empower your people to share the message of who Jesus is and what he has done. And this morning, let us remember this great thing that you have done in Jesus' body and in his blood. We thank you that we have new life in him, a life of meaning in him. God, we, we, we thank you again for this wonderful gift of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.